0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Have you ever needed to make a hedge smaller or rejuvenate a plant that's seen better days? Charles King Sadler is a horticulturist, author, educator and pruning expert from Houston, Texas. He's the founder and principal of King Garden, and in this episode, we're going to take one step deeper into pruning theory than we've ever gone before on this podcast. We begin by going back over some of the tree pruning basics we've already covered with Gary Moran in episode 96, because it's time we had another reminder of how to correctly prune a tree. And then after that, we discuss the difference between renewal, rejuvenation, and reconstruction pruning, which all sound like the same thing at first. By the end of the episode, you'll have learned how to prune a hedge so that you can't rest a cup of tea on it, how to prune cany plants with multiple leaders coming from a common base, and how to get some foliage back into the middle of those hedges so they don't go brown when you need to shear them down a few sizes. G'day Charles, welcome to the show. Good to be here, down under. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be fun. So Charles, why is pruning correctly so important anyway?
1: Well, good question. Pruning sends a message to the plant, to the tree or the shrub, and if we're pruning in a way that's harmonious with the way the plant grows, you'll get good results, you'll get a healthy tree or shrub. If it's not in harmony with the plant, the plant is going to respond, like when you make a header cut, when you're pruning a hedge, let's say, and you're just indiscriminately cutting, which which can be appropriate, depending you're going to get a lot of shoots. So if you do that to a tree, for instance, like you topped a tree so you could see a, a view out, that tree is going to send out like hundreds of little shoots, <laughs> which might not be what you want. <laughs> there might be another way to accomplish that.
0: Right. So I guess what you're saying is if we prune indiscriminately without skill, we end up creating a hedge basically every single time or a dead tree. Mm-hmm. Correct,
1: and it can be actually really dangerous because those are those new shoots that emerge from a header cut are they're generally not going to have integrity. They're not going to have a good connection, and so they could break in a storm or just over time they're probably going to fail.
0: Mm. And that's dangerous. And I guess that's part of your job as well, right?
1: Right. I mean, I do tree risk assessment. I volunteered for tree commissions in various places I've lived, and I do. Expert witness for litigation when someone's injured by it from a tree, and it's often either it was neglected or many Almost always, there was some kind of pruning involved. Like there was a railroad tracks, and they were pruning to keep the train the trees away. They were just indiscriminately pruning, and then eventually <laughs> those trees fall down because <laughs> they because decay builds up when things aren't pruned properly. Often,
0: I see. And that evidence is left in the tree. You know, if you malprune a tree, that evidence really will always be there.
1: That's a good point. Yeah, trees don't actually heal; they, they compartmentalize. So, if something was made, if a pruning cut was made in the nineteen fifties, <laughs> if you cut, the, if you dissect the tree, which which I've done before and seen it, you can see that cut in the nineteen fifties and see how the tree sealed that over. It's almost like a submarine, actually. You think of a submarine, all the different compartments and the doors. That's more or less what a tree is doing. That it's, and it depends how the pruning cut is made. If it's made in harmony with the tree, then you get that submarine door closes nicely and you, and you keep the decay out. If, it's, if you do an indiscriminate cut where it can't uh, seal over, like at a branch collar or a junction then that submarine door is like open
0: and then mm. you're going to have come on in, squirrel boys. or <laughs> <a>
1: squirrels or <laughs> raccoons or it's going to be a house for an animal.
0: <laughs> yes. So we always talk about right plant, right place on this podcast. So what do you think that that means in context of trees, especially?
1: Uh, I mean, really understanding the profile of the tree. And so, I mean, I, as I travel, I study, I work. I'd I like to get to know the plants like I do a friend. I mean, you know, all their traits. You know, they're 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 nice traits, and then they're not so nice traits. Mm. <laughs> uh, like maybe there's a friend you know that's very funny, but they have a foul mouth. So <laughs> <laughs> so don't ask that person to tell a joke around you know your 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 grandmother, let's say. Uh, so really intimately knowing the traits of the trees and studying them in many different, um, I'm in Texas is where I live. And so in Houston, it's very hot and humid. And we get about 50 inches of rain a year. And then as you go to central Texas, Austin, San Antonio, it's, there's very low humidity, a lot less rain, the soils. And that's only a matter of like a three hour drive. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost a desert there. So the same trees are going to behave very differently.
0: And then you might want to prune it more or less depending on how much space you've given that tree. So, you know, sometimes we set trees up for failure by putting something in that looks great when it's just a little sapling, but one day that thing's going to be a giant.
1: Right. Like with some of the developers I work with doing master planning, and they even said that planting a tree too close to a concrete foundation would void... The warranty like on the foundation so wow um, so that's almost like anti you know it's like saying don't plant any trees which that's mm. not the answer but planting and there's there is great research if you depending where in the world you live you can find out there's data like there's even i'm not sure if it's a tree you folks would use but there's a zelkova variety and it's its name is wire friendly i think <laughs> because it grows well with utility wires it, like it has so many, um, it has so many stems. It doesn't really have any large trunks. It has many stems, and so that tends to be, it just sort of swishes around the wires. But it still becomes a very big shade tree, which could, which could be the strategy that you'd want.
0: Hmm. I see. When you said wire friendly, I, initially I thought you meant around the root ball.
1: Oh right, <laughs> that's a whole other thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, like like the conditions, that really does make a difference where I can think of when I worked in Manhattan, there was the street I, li- I worked on, there were pin oaks, like uh, Quercus palustris, And so in an urban sort of canyon, I mean, those trees, the trunk gets bigger, but the canopy really is not, it's, it's dwarfed basically, because like there's, the roots are somewhat confined and there's a lot less light. There's pollution. So they're still producing benefits, but that same tree like a mile away in a park is going to get enormous.
0: Mm -hmm. So we're going to just touch on a few more basics before. Now, we have covered on this podcast pruning before, and that was with uh, Gary Moran but this time we are focusing on restorative pruning. But before we get there, I just wanted to quickly ask a couple more just basic questions just as reminders about just the tree pruning basics. So what happens when we fail to formatively prune our trees in the first few years of their lives?
1: Uh, really good question. There's what I call structural pruning. or no, I, don't, I didn't come up with that. <laughs> and so that, <laughs> that is creating beneficial structure, just like you. there's architecture in a building. Um, And so that's generally tends to be the branches are equidistant. So when the tree is young, it's very easy to remove extraneous branches, branches that are, are, let's say, crossing or too close together or growing inward. If it's not done in its youth, it's like correcting a bad habit. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've been a smoker for 30 years, (laughs) it's going to be really hard to quit as opposed to if you're you Know 17 years old and you're quitting. Like, uh, pruning is basically wounding a tree, you're creating an area where disease and insects can get in. So, the smaller the wound, the better. And if, if, if it's if it's if the tree is older and in your you're gonna have to create larger wounds. And so, I mean, the general guideline amongst my arborist friends is like a two inch diameter, and so I'm not sure that would be in centimeters, but. Like two-inch diameter branches are smaller. That is, that's what you should aim for. You should really shouldn't do much pruning larger than that, I mean, unless there's, you know, like it's a hazard. Mm.
0: I am saddened by the size of some of the chainsaws that home gardeners run around with, and um, just professional gardeners, in, in I guess in inverted commas, professional gardeners. Some of the cuts that we're allowed to make are. Not a good idea to be making, especially without knowing what a branch collar is or, you know, what the different types of cuts are, you know, because you see these flush cuts, which do not take into account the branch collar. And they just cut right to the stem and you just see, you see people doing this and you just think you're shortening that tree's life. And not Mm. just that, but also the other one that really gets me is the cut straight from the top. We're cutting great big branches and then we just cut straight from the top and it rips the bark down the stem, and then we just Ugh. put it in our trailer and we go away. Thank you. That'll be $50. bucks. we are going to take that to the dump now for you. Because trees move so slowly, it's hard to really get a grasp on just what exactly you've just done to that tree. But come back in 10 years' time and have a look at that tree, what the growth has done, how much dieback there is, and you realize that there are severe consequences to our actions. Mm-hmm.
1: There's a great... Um, you're- might be familiar with him Duncan Slater who's a, yes. like a tree enthusiast and a professor in England and so he has great posts I mean, where he documents you know and he, he visits a year later five years ten years and so to, to see I mean there's some plants that recover so in ten years let's say there was a storm and it did, did recover sometime. and then other times it'll it'll show like when there's a flush cut where it's still not healed it's going you know very slowly or maybe not at all
0: yeah. I saw one the other day. It looked like a toilet. It had a big back on it. There was a multi-stem tree. They'd lopped off one of these stems about, I don't know, I think it was like a meter off the ground or something like that. And it was completely hollow right down to the base. And this was only in a couple of years. Like, I think it was an Acer. And I believe they rot pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. We see that in Texas, there's lots of live oaks, which is a like Quercus virginiana and... It, it goes almost like an octopus. So many hmm. stems, very wide, like maybe two or three times as wide as it is tall. And the the gardeners cut off the limbs, you know, thinking like they try to limit up. But it's so wide, hmm. it's it's really it, that's an example of it's not the right tree in the right place. If if you're taking off all the lower branches,
0: <laughs> mm. yeah, maybe it's okay to remove one branch when we're walking through a pathway. But not to just hedge prune it off to the pathway. You know, certain plants you can get away with it, certain plants you can't. But I guess that that sort of brings us to the next question of what's the inspection interval?
1: So the inspection interval comes up, you hear it quite a bit, in in a municipal arborist setting. And so to manage resources and budgets and then also the public safety, um, how often is that tree inspected? And so, I mean, there's like the, some of the villages I used to live in areas, high traffic areas they would expect more regularly, but they're saying like within seven years, we're going to get to every tree more or less. that's on a right of way that, Hmm. that somehow interacts. It's either on a road, a sidewalk. And so how that relates to pruning, when I do assessments, knowing now if it's on a, if it's a residential property say we're going to assess this every year then maybe you could be a little more um cautious with the pruning you could say let's you know it probably needs it but let's wait a year if it's mm-hmm. a municipal pruning and you know the next time someone's coming back in 7 years at the soonest if if something is a possible hazard then that's that's probably a probably pruning cut that you want to make
0: so it's not about pruning every year, it's about inspecting regularly.
1: Right. And so the interval, it's good to know when you're inspecting it, what the interval is, and that should really inform how aggressive the pruning is. That, or you could make a note on the account, you know, to, to follow up. Let's follow up in two years and see even, you know, uh, even if normally you'd be seven years.
0: hmm I'd like to now differentiate between three different terms. Now, they probably sound like the same thing at first, at least they did to me. These all sound like the same meaning. What's the difference between renewal, rejuvenation, and restorative pruning, Charles?
1: Uh, good question. Um, it's good to sort of tease those apart. So, So I'll start with rejuvenation. So rejuvenation is, when I use that word, it's saying that the plant needs rejuvenating, that there's somehow, it could be an old Lagustrum hedge, which is popular in the U.S., like in the old, in the Hamptons, or, um, and so some of those hedges are 120 years old. And so there's lots of, there's old growth, or like a lilac, that's another plant, that it just develops these old, large stems. That is not necessarily that aggressive. It's trying to bring health back to the plant. So the act of pruning cr- properly is going to stimulate the plant to grow. And so it might be taking out maybe, let's say, 10% of the old growth. It could even It's even done with like rose bushes. Um, so it's not that extreme, but it's more aggressive than just standard pruning. Mm. Um, and then renovation pruning, that would be similar to you renovating your house or business where that could be you're tearing down walls in your house (laughs) that's like that's like saying we're really going to reconstruct um and so that might be that the plant has gotten like if i think of examples of that uh like the the smoke bush is a popular plant um cotinus and so that is often pruned as a pollarded or it's really pruned back so you have all this it produces lots of colorful foliage in the summer um so renovation is more radically pruning it uh sometimes it's for an effect or it, like there's plenty of consulting work i do where the hedge or the or the ornamental plant has gotten too large and the owner does not want to remove it but they said we can't our car can't get in our driveway Mm. or people in the park can't see, uh, like can't see into the park because the hedge is too tall. It's sometimes a step before removal and saying, let's give this, let's give this a try.
0: I can so relate with that as a maintenance gardener because the the customer will come out and they'll tell you, can you please make this hedge smaller? And then you have to sort of reach into the hedge and show them, this, this foliage on one centimeter of the outside of this hedge. If you peek in, this is all brown. So this is what it's going to look like if we hedge it. So w- like, what is the secret there? Because I've never, I've always either said it's going to go brown, and you're going to need to look at it until it grows back again. You know, if the hedge can take it, if it's something like a Diosma or something like that that can actually take it. Like, what? How do we do that without making the hedge look ugly, or do we just have to accept that it looks ugly for a while?
1: That's a really good question. That's where the the timing is very important. So mm-hmm. if you're gonna go in for surgery, I mean I'm not particularly old, I'm fifty-one, but you get a little older, they give you a stress test to make sure your heart can take, you know. <laughs> and so that's what I do with the plants. So that's like you said, opening up the hedge, inspecting it. Um here in the US, well lots of the work I do is renovation pruning because the gardener doesn't know what to do. The landscape architect doesn't know what to do. And so it's often, so for instance, um, there was a topiary garden I remember in, in New York State. And so what we, and it, it was a boxwood formal garden with roses, and it had become overgrown. And you couldn't see the roses because the hedges were so tall. And so they wanted it, it was probably almost a meter high, and they wanted it to be about half that height. And so what we did, we, in the late summer, we thinned the hedge. So that is reaching inside and cutting out a section of the hedge. So the, the profile of the hedge is still the same. It's still that same rectangle, but there are, you're making holes into it. And so that's areas for light to get in and for the hedge to rejuvenate, to put out new growth from the interior. So that was probably done in like August or September Um, Then it was also fertilized at that time, and it was watered in to make, and there's plenty of rain in the fall. Uh, Then the following spring, I think it might have been March or April, so it had put on some growth by that point, some interior growth. Um, We cut it down by half. And so that's what's called dormant season pruning where the plant is just like a, like a person when you're under anesthesia, (laughs) the plant is more or less just sitting there resting, which is very important. So it has all that stored energy in its roots. um, And it was cut back by about half before it started to grow, which is like essential. You wouldn't want to do that when it already was growing. Mm. And then all that stored energy pops out as nice new leaves and then by the, by like the middle of that summer, you couldn't even tell it was pruned. Wow. Even though it was almost like beheaded, you know, it looked really <laughs> severe.
0: So your first step is just before winter or during autumn, right? Right. Um, you've reached in, you've pruned a bunch of the the stems right back down quite close to the base. And then what that's done is that's allowed sunlight to get into the middle of the hedge and create some of that foliage where there was none in the middle. And then mm-hmm. you've come and hacked it through in just before spring, just before the plant wakes up. So, right. what did it look like after that second pruning that you'd done in in winter?
1: Well, it was it was like an evergreen hedge of boxwood. So, the sides of the hedge still had ever had leaves,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: the top was all bare stems. Mm. Um, and the I am very keen on the type, like the right plant, the right place, the right tool for the right job. So I have an extensive, <laughs> every type of tool, and I'm not opposed to, there's every tool like has its use. And so in this case, we used mechanical trimmers, either electric or gas to, I mean, to go through, this was like hundreds and hundreds of feet of hedge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of that mechanical trimmers are not the greatest because they tear, even mm-hmm. when they're very sharp. And so, if it's if you're cutting fine, like one year old growth, that's fine. And so then we went back with loppers, with bypass pruners, and we put in clean cuts to uh, to some of the the larger diameter. Um, and then we also cut at different heights. So the hedge trimmer cut all at all the same height. Then we came back with loppers and, and secateurs, and that we cut some of the interior at various heights. So the new growth is not going to all come out at the same location. It's going to, some would be 10 inches off the ground, some 20, some 30.
0: Mm. That's a great point. Just to add to that, sometimes I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when they're pruning, you know, something a bit more extensive, some of those bigger diameter cuts, they'll cut it exactly to where they want that hedge. And then they're constantly butting up against those large diameter cuts every single time they come back to prune that hedge.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So, actually, in the like when we did the previous season pruning, that's what we were looking for. And like we were pruning by touch. So, we're touching the heads, like petting it. You know, have you yeah. petted your box lately? <laughs> and you can tell, like, where you could put down an iced tea glass, it was so rigid, you know. And so, that's where you want to get the loppers out and take out. It's almost like a knuckle or a fist sometimes of something that's been repeatedly pruned. And so, that makes it easier, like, knowing that the mechanical, that the head shears are going to go through it in six months. I'm pruning with that in mind, like what can that easily go through? And it can mm. go through like growth that's like one or two years old. So anything thicker, let's let's get that out of there now. <laughs>
0: mm. This isn't happening in Australian gardens, at least in domestic gardens, I can tell you that we definitely have a habit of creating them. Like you said, it's like a table. You can put a teacup on there, you know, um, and, and it'll sit there, you know.
1: Right. There's, I mean, like when I communicate with uh, my colleagues in England or other parts of Europe, the idea of thinning and that structural pruning, it's, it is not well known that it's, and so all the pruning of box and other plants into very tight shapes is an aesthetic preference. But when when I chat with them in detail, I say, well, how do you keep it so green? And they'll say, well, we're, we're fertilizing it. Every two weeks, we're mm. spraying it. There, I mean, there's a lot of inputs where the approach I take, I mean, pretty much need no fertilizer, almost no pesticides, no irrigation. So the plant doesn't look quite as perfect, but it's, it's always green <laughs> and it's much more stable. It's like a healthy person. It's not likely to get a cold because it's, it's not being stressed by that really severe pruning. And then it goes, part of that is really educating the owner or the manager and saying, this is going to look a little different than you're used to, but we're going to keep the maintenance costs are going to be a little lower eventually because we're not going to have to come every three weeks to prune it. The plant's going to be healthier. If there's a severe drought or something, the plants are not as likely to die because they're going to have more reserve.
0: Happy plant. (laughs) And I think as well, it looks like a plant, maybe a little bit more as well, because you can see some of those natural shapes, right?
1: Right, so so I'm just sort of subtly steering people, like they're not going to go for a wild garden necessarily, you know, (laughs) if they like it very precise, but sometimes just a subtle change and then people see the effects like wow it does it looks green all year the way you suggest it's not
0: Mm.
1: doesn't look brown in july after they've you know tightly sheared it
0: yeah awesome so if we've ever pruned a tree into like a fridge shape or a hockey puck shape or something like that can we ever get that natural shape back again or will it always have an unnatural shape no matter what we do
1: Oh, that's a good question. That's like a popular question actually like a homeowner um or a manager would ask um it somewhat depends on the species so with that with with a thinning pruning i mean almost any plant that's a head shape can be thinned and then eventually it can it it can achieve another shape um I mean there are some here in the u s What was very popular was ewe or taxis. And so it's not as much because the deer, there's lots of deer and deer browsing. Um, But that's a plant you can prune into a very precise hedge and get that fridge-like shape. Um, And if it's been done for a long time, when you do the thinning, it might take a few years just for it to loosen up a little. Um, And so that plant is particularly unforgiving that, um, I, I find where boxwood is very forgiving. Uh, so it really depends on the species and how the boxwood to get it out of that tight shape might just take a couple of seasons.
0: Mm. And
1: with the, you, it might take five, six years where you're gradually. And then at that same time, you want to really monitor the health too. Like the water, the fertilizer. Um, I mean, the average garden I would say is like over irrigated, over fertilized in the U S and that over pruned. So if you take out the irrigation and the fertilizer, um, I mean, it's like, if I'm eating a 5,000 calorie diet, I've got to be like running a marathon, you know, yeah, <laughs> if yeah. I just get down to a nice normal diet, I mean, I don't have to be, you don't have to do this extreme pruning.
0: That's a really good point. So I guess it's a a slow and steady wins the race here. You know, we're not gonna come in and try and achieve that shape on day one today.
1: Right. The timing like when I visit a client, I mean, I guess I'm a salesman at heart too. So (laughs) I always wanna like like what can we do for you now? Mm. You know, and it's always ethical, of course, but so if it's going into when it's gonna be cool, I could say, well, we could thin it in preparation for the renovation the following year. Um, And then sometimes you're like, we can't do anything now, but Hmm. next March or next year is when we can do it. And I mean, time goes by pretty quickly. You plan it. Um, There was one hedge that was on the uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. There's some very like homes that properties that go back to the 1600s, like pre-United States and so there are privet hedges, and they're not that old, but they are really, really old. <laughs> and I've done some renovation of those. And it was, I mean, like three or four years where it's it's like taking out the dead, then waiting six months, <laughs> then shaping it a little bit, then waiting six months. Yeah. And the owner was really happy. It was like a four year project, but now it's the height came down. It was getting unmanageable to maintain where it was 12 feet. Let's say he wanted it down to like nine feet where you didn't need as large of equipment to, to care for it.
0: So what's renewal pruning? Well, renewal
1: pruning, it's often tied into, I mean, there's definitely overlap with the, with these, with these three R's, renovation, rejuvenation, renewal. Um, I don't say the renewal it's it's similar to rejuvenation but probably a little milder so i mean a plant i'm not sure if you folks grow if lilacs are even suited to the you know warmer climates in australia but um but a lilac is a plant unless you want it to be 25 feet tall which generally you don't um that's a plant that you're almost every season you are reducing the height so it's so that you get flowers closer to eye level. It's like, you know, eight to 12 feet at least. Um, And so that would be an example of, of renewal where, and so it's generally like a one or two year process of saying, or like some of the fruit trees. I do lots of orchard pruning and consulting with orchards. And so there it's similar where it's, we're trying to keep the height down. It's, it's not that extreme. You're not, Doing anything radical, um, but you're you're controlling where the fruit or the flowers are going to be, so that it's either pleasing or so that you can reach the apple or the pear.
0: So that's renewal pruning.
1: Correct. Right. That's like that's that's maybe the milder of the of the three.
0: Okay. So if someone said to you, "What's the difference between renewal?" And rejuvenation pruning is would you just say it's a milder version, or would there be another answer that you could give?
1: Ah uh, let's see I mean there's often really like a problem when something when you need the heavier pruning like there's whether they, either the plants in decline or it is just like really radically the wrong size or the wrong shape okay where the where the milder version is really what you're aiming for is, it is much subtler. Like we want to encourage some apples here or, or some flowers at, at this location.
0: Wonderful. So Charles, let's just say there's someone listening right now and they're going to go out after they finish listening to this, they may be driving around right now and they may be seeing trees along the way. Maybe they've pruned these trees. Maybe somebody else has pruned these trees. What are some signs that you can tell them to look out for That they can say this tree was correctly pruned or this tree was incorrectly pruned.
1: Ah, good question. Um, Well, we've we've talked about the branch collar quite a bit, and so when it's like a subsidiary branch to the trunk, then there's a collar, and so depending on the species, it's like It tends to be, it's between the. The trunk and the branch. There's tissue, and it's sometimes it's, it, it's a bit swollen. It's almost uh, in the U.S. Like when it's cold, we wear turtlenecks, <laughs> and it's almost or like a or like a priest's collar.
0: That's a good one.
1: <laughs> it's it's this, like a thin strip. Um, so if you can see the branch collar, if it's pruned back to that, then that's a good cut. Now, if there's a, if there's sort of like a stub or a stump and it's just this indiscriminate cut that's, you know, five inches, 10 inches, um, that's not, that is almost never a good idea. And if it's a flush cut where it's really close to the tree and it's like, it's often an an unusual shape because it's, it's like this, like a long oblong. Mm. Um, if, if there are, if there's rips or tears in the cut, so it's not a clean cut, um, and then topping the tree, that, I mean, there's cases for that, like for Vista pruning where you want to maintain um, a view out somewhere. Um, but topping the tree is generally not a, that leads to all kinds of problems of decay. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if the crew is working, I mean, the, what the old sort of folk tale is, or that the customer judges the quality of the work by how neatly you work. So even if you have no idea what you're doing, and which is generally true, if you're working like safely, everyone's wearing a hard hat, eye protection, the person that's operating the chainsaw or the other tools is being, everyone's staying away from them. Um, if there's someone directing traffic, I mean, that's, if they're conscientious to that level, there's a good chance that they're going to be doing the right thing. If you see somebody like, like swinging from the tree, <laughs> no hard hat, got the chainsaw going in one hand, there's no person on the road. And then all of a sudden the limb drops across the road. And I've seen that.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. No, it's bloody dangerous work. Hats off to all the Arbs who actually put their body on the line every day and climb up into trees and who have done the hard yards for educating themselves so that they can make those right cuts. Because – I mean, anyone can climb a tree with a chainsaw. That doesn't make you a professional arborist, right?
1: You know, like another thing that comes up—it's particularly prevalent in Texas—is called oak wilt. So it's—it's it's a now you folks may not have it in Australia, but the but the concept is it's like a blight or a fungus, and it's it's active certain times of the year, it's generally when it's going into the growing season and then when it's warm and then it stops as things cool down and you go into the winter, I believe. Hmm. So for instance, if in Texas, if somebody was pruning a tree in the wrong month and it was an oak tree, you would know either it's a hazardous tree or they don't know what they're doing.
0: Hmm.
1: And it's about a six month period where you really, I mean, there's some municipalities that really monitor it because it's so contagious. One oak tree gets it and then it can spread it through its roots to another oak tree
0: mm. all because someone made the wrong cuts
1: right and that's a case actually where generally putting tar or paint over the wound is not the best practice anymore but in this particular oak case there are times where you are where you do want to paint the wound because the the negative is so negative it's so bad that you know the, the blight
0: yeah, so I guess that that's something that used to happen, right? People used to paint the the wounds black, and I, I think you still see it sometimes, but, yeah, you don't see it very often.
1: Right, it's better, like, the, what the science says is the tree heals better on its own. What that can do, it'll, it'll trap moisture inside the mm. tree, and so the moisture can't come and go like you want it to. And another thing, I mean, in really old trees is, in the US, you'll see concrete where there was a cavity and 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 Joe, you know, Joe Arboris filled it with concrete in 1950. And so when you're <laughs> doing tree work, I mean you have to be aware, like there could be concrete inside there.
0: That is crazy. I, I don't know, even somebody who'd never been to any kind of education around trees, maybe before they even had the arboricultural sciences really worked out. Why would you pour concrete in there? The only reason why you do that is because you know for a fact you're never going to have to return to that tree, and that's someone else's problem,
1: right? (laughs) I mean, I guess it was to keep water out, but but concrete like absorbs moisture.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, they just put the powder in.
1: Well, no, I mean, I I mean, concrete like it will. It's not really going to keep the tree dry, so it's not going to do. You know, it's sort of backfires. Yeah, I mean, occasionally on it's unusual but you'll see like when there's a very large cavity a metal plate has been attached so that the water will run off i mean a very occasion like if it was a heritage you know really special tree uh that had a big cavity and that the water was occasionally i've seen that and that that could be okay like if
0: if you monitored it (laughs) Mm, this is like a mechanical barrier physical barrier but what about like while we're here? What about like nails and screws in the tree? Like, is that something to care about? Is that something to worry about?
1: That's also really hazardous. Like, in, um, my brother's a forester in New York State, and so I uh, mean, so like he follows the tree. He's with the other arborists consulting foresters, and they're marking the trees. And eventually, they go back to the sawmill for for furniture, like hardwood. So these are really old sugar maples and oaks. And they have like sort of like this wall of horror in some of these um lumber yards of all the things they found, you know bullets and chains like 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 the whole head of the chainsaw
0: oh right. yep, <laughs> just give it up
1: <laughs> I mean, like animal heads. there was one that someone posted recently it was it was a dog had fallen into a tree cavity, i mean and it was like a skeleton, you know it was so. Wow. So if this, and so on the, if you're operating a chainsaw, you should have that in your mind. In Texas, uh, barbed wire, you know, is that's that's used, that's common uh, on ranches. And so, if you're cutting down a tree, it's a very good chance there's. Barbed. If it's an old tree, very good chance that there's barbed wire in it. Particularly if it's anywhere near a property border.
0: Hmm. And what happens when a chainsaw hits that at going at a million miles an hour?
1: Well, the chainsaw I could buck and 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 have kickback. You know, yeah. it's like that. That's why actually wearing wearing a hard hat. That's one of the main benefits. It's not that something's going to fall on your head, but if that chainsaw kicks back, mm. that blade could go right into your head. And so, having the hard hat on, like, greatly reduces the chance of that.
0: Mm. And we've got the chaps as well. Never forget to wear the chaps. Which uh... that's right. What tef- uh, Kefla, Is that what it is inside of them?
1: I think it's something like that. Which I mean, I've seen those work. I mean, they really do work, and the, it stops the blade almost instantly. Yeah, there's like a very like like
0: fibers. Mm, yeah, and, the, and it just breaks it. It doesn't break it. It breaks it. B R A K E. <laughs> right, it like it's, it, it hits the brakes for the yes. chainsaw.
1: <laughs> and so, being prepared. I mean, having. When I did this consulting arborist project in California, we were cutting down trees that had been burned by, by the wildfires. Um, and so there were all these ranches. And, I mean, so many of the trees had barbed wire in them. And so, I mean, they had to have three or four backup chains. And you know, they were changing them out like every hour sometimes because they were
0: <laughs>
1: getting mm. getting beat up.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I can't imagine it's good for the chain either, like whoever's sitting back at the yard having to sharpen them every day.
1: (laughs) I know, that's a tedious
0: process. (laughs) (sighs) So look, we've talked quite generally, I guess, about pruning here today. I think something to keep in mind is that We have mentioned it, but I just want to touch on it again that not every tree responds in the same way. So you can't really just listen to one podcast episode and then sort of call yourself an expert tree pruner because I guess it's really a bit more like a lifelong journey, right?
1: Right, I would agree. I mean, seeing – I'm in Texas now, but I was just in New York a couple days ago, and I do pruning trainings for – it's often like a a landscape crew or – maintenance crew, but this was these were homeowners. Um, and so we were pruning weeping Japanese maples were the main thing we worked on that were quite old. And so a big part of pruning is observing how the plant responds, going mm-hmm. back. And so I explained to them, I've learned lots. I've had more failures than successes. I mean, I've, like I do this for a living, I've had lots of successes, <laughs> but <laughs> I've had all this experience of, From making mistakes, and then, but it's so important to to go back, observe it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what doctors do. There's like a, like a, it's like a confidential morbidity um, Mm -hmm. conference. So, if I was a younger doctor, you were an older doctor, we would reveal like we I did surgery, and the person died, and it would be Mm -hmm. confidential, and would say, "What did you look like? What is there to learn from this?" And I think so many Mm -hmm. industries would benefit just being hey, like I made, a, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I made a mistake and how can we improve it?
0: And sometimes you don't know why what the mistake you did because, again, trees move so slowly. So was it the pruning cut? Was it the fact that they keep driving over those roots like they've changed where they parked the car? Maybe they parked the car in the front yard now. Like or was it just a freak pest or disease and we just haven't identified it yet? You know, like a lot of, you know, gardening is not easy, mate.
1: <laughs> right. Like there, There's so many factors. I mean, there was one tree, I remember it was a sugar maple. Um, and the homeowners had done a big renovation on their house and they had what they call like a portage on, I don't know what you guys call it here, but like an outdoor bathroom. And it has all that, I mean, like chemical liquid in it, sanitizer or whatever. And so that tipped over at the base of this very big sugar maple. And so the tree it took multiple years, but eventually it died. But it was like Mm -hmm. you know, like a five year decline so if you didn't know the porta potty tipped over on that you would say "Oh, well, i guess the tree was just old
0: yeah again maples i've had several occasions when it's the homeowner comes out and says like oh what's going on with these maples they've been here for 10 years they're beautiful trees and they're just not looking the best anymore and you look at it and 10 years ago they were planted too deeply and it's like just oh. like it's taken that long for that sort of to that health problem to develop into now it's losing leaves and it's looking sick and all that sort of stuff.
1: That's a really good point that it's this trying to like, to be the, like the philosopher in, in the gadfly, like to call like truth to things Yeah, is like pretty humble job. It's not often popular.
0: No. And
1: it's not about saying like, I know more than you, but yeah. Um,
0: Sometimes you do though.
1: <laughs> like when I'm doing trainings, I often say, guys, this is because people are sometimes skeptical, you know, with someone that has a lot of education. So this is what I learned at my conference or my training. Mm. Or So it's not like it's my idea, which sometimes people can be threatened by.
0: Mm. And I can
1: say this is like what the research shows, the science mm-hmm. shows.
0: So it's no good to be like, hey man, you paid me to come here. Why why'd you bother paying me if you didn't want to hear my it's just very humble. It's um let's get this work done together. Let's work collaborative. let's work collaboratively, let's remove the ego as much as possible. Yeah, good point. You know, deal with the facts kind of thing. I love that. And I love how you say where you learn something too. You know, oh, ten years ago when I was in university, I learned this. And then actually you know, three years ago, I've seen a very similar case to this, and this is what we found through that case. So I, I do think that this might be the case here. Would you trust me and let me have a crack at remediating this problem? We're going to dig around the base and see if that works.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, case, like, it's concrete.
0: Mm, yeah, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about this tree here. This is, this is what we're looking at.
1: Right. And then people really listen and then you, you see them a few years later and they quote back to you what you say, You're like, wow, I'm glad I am glad I was pretty close. I was pretty accurate, you know, hopefully. Yeah, that's great.
0: So I guess in the spirit of talking about how not all trees respond the same way to pruning cuts, I want to picture now like a cany shrub or a cany plant, which means that there are multiple stems all coming from the base, um, you know, there's lots of there's lots of plants that are like that. Um, well, should we just attack the tips with the hedge pruner or is there a better way to prune a cany type of a plant?
1: That's a really good question, Daniel. When I did a training in Massachusetts last winter, it was a tennis court and they had these evergreen viburnums. Um, I think it was like, they were leather leaf, which is very popular in the US because they're pretty much the deer stay away from them. And so, when you prune the tips of those, it's a very vigorous plant. It wants to be about like uh, like five meters tall is about its happy place. And so, you generally, you don't want it that tall. And so, it, that's exactly what we did: is we took um, there was plenty of foliage. Most of the vigor was on the like the top third of the plant because it had been topped or tipped. And so, we we selected the thickest canes. And we cut those to the ground. And then so what was left were these, there was still plenty of foliage because the the more vigorous canes tended to have the foliage just at the tip because those want to become basically like trees. And that, um, so taking out the vigor and the plants that really are, not those stems were not providing much foliage, which is, that's, that's the, the reason for being there. And then there's also, so by doing that, you're sort of waking the plant up and it might put out, it might do have a lot of response growth. So it's never just like, let's take out the canes and then you're done. But then it's real important to follow up because it might put out a dozen new canes Mm. and you're, you would probably want to edit out some of those.
0: So you can just cut those suckers back again? Generally.
1: Generally. And and, and in some cases, you might want to even cut them to different heights.
0: Mm. So you do tip prune a couple of them if you want to maybe have some variation in the shape there or something like that.
1: Right. I mean, you might be able, depending how vigorous they are. Mm. Like the most vigorous one, you might maybe cut, like like reduce the height by half. Ah.
0: And that'll promote side shoots off him.
1: Right. And some of those plants, it really is... When I visit properties, I mean, every few months, like interacting with the plant, these those sort of cany type plants. And then you can keep a pretty nice form, but it's coming in with the hedge trimmers once a year and giving it a haircut is, it's, the plant really is never going to look very good. And it's not healthy and it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of labor too. I mean, it's having this very powerful tool and, you know, using generally petroleum And, yeah, there's a lot of negatives. So just being a little smarter, Mm. (laughs) like less labor, less pollution. And the plant is able to really do its job, like to have all the foliage.
0: Absolutely. I also love the remove the ego thing as well, because any time when you come to a client and you say, let's cut the biggest stem out of this plant, they sort of go, oh. (laughs) Do we have to do that? Are you sure? Should I get another gardener? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, they see that
1: cut like it's the like the lilacs come to mind because those are so vigorous. But but then within a, two or three years, it's loaded with flowers because lots of new shoots have emerged.
0: Well, that's another thing too. We can prune to promote flowers on some plants. And I think sometimes that's that can be because they're happier and sometimes that can be because they're worried that they won't last the, and they want to sort of send it the next generation. Is that right?
1: Right. I mean, sometimes it's, is it um, some of the palms or bamboo or agave, when they flower, like the century <laughs> plant, it means like it's going to die. <laughs> yeah,
0: monocarpic. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. You know, like a couple of, couple of points that I always – what I'm educating folks on pruning is um, is where is the sun? So I, I mean, I say like in the Northern Hemisphere, the sun is basically in the South. And so for you folks, it'd be like the sun would be in the North. Mm. And so that's really important. So the vigor of the plant is generally more vigorous. When I go to the barber, if my hair is thin on top. <laughs> and so I say, don't take off too much. So my... <laughs> My, my the top of my hair that's like the north side, it's like easy does it don't take off on the on the shady side. then the other key point is where do you see it from, and they're generally not the same. They're not looking out of your kitchen window, and so it should look if that's the most important view, you better make sure that that the pruning looks good from there.
0: Yeah, we can't always look from the sunny side, can we sometimes the-
1: <laughs> you're right yeah the plant might actually be there to provide shade so so yeah. the sunny side is is the far side
0: yeah so i guess that that's probably a whole other episode i I know that there's a guy who has a lot to say about that jonathan gardner i was chatting with him recently he's in australia you wouldn't know him but um yeah he, he had a lot to say about that i'd like to organize an episode with him about photo what's the term it's not photosynthesis it's phototropic something
1: Right, phototropism.
0: Phototropism,
1: that's the one. Yeah. And some plants can handle shade. Like when you're out hiking in nature, you'll see an understory, like a broadleaf understory plant that's perfectly happy, like a laurel or rhododendron. And then other plants, I mean, it's completely bare on the shady side. Yeah. And so that's real important in the design process of knowing.
0: Mm. Again, right plant, right place. Right. So just after we've just been talking about how, you know, every tree has a different pruning preference and, you know, there's all these subtle differences, but are there any sort of general rules, obviously with exceptions, that how a tree should look after we prune correctly?
1: Uh, Good question. Well, the term, I mean, people you think about about Christmas tree or many conifers, it's generally like a strong central leader or central trunk. So that term, apical dominance. I mean, there are exceptions, but most trees have. You know, it might be several trunks. Mm. Um, so in that, in that pruning in its youth, you want to prune to develop a strong central leader, generally. And so, if you're studying a plant, I mean, a plant that's somewhat invasive in the, in North America would be the Norway maple. Uh, which I think was popular in the night like in the 1950s <laughs> it was planted in all the developments, and so that tree it grows so quickly, or like the atlantis or so there are just like so many stems going every which way, um, and so that's a plant it's trying to take over, it's trying to be dominant, and so that's like a sign of that that's hazardous. Um, mm. so when it's pruned well, if you look at the tree and you squint. I mean, often this is particularly helpful. Like on shrubs, if you squint, the density of the branches—it should be pretty equal. Okay. So we were when we were pruning that weeping Japanese maple. When you squinted, there were areas where it was where you couldn't see the sunlight coming through mm. at all. It was you know really dense. So that's like well, okay, we need to probably thin that a little more.
0: Cass Turnbull from Plant Amnesty used to say, um. You want a bird to be able to fly through the stems but a swallow not a pelican. <laughs> I
1: love it. <laughs> I think I've heard that term but I didn't know that came
0: from her. I don't know if it came from her that's just what I heard her say it that's where I heard. Yeah, it. She, she was such an
1: inspiration, oh my gosh. Yeah,
0: she was for me for sure because no one else taught me pruning I had to go and search it out myself. Mhm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The same with me. I mean, it's like, I mean, there are courses on it, but it's, there's so many designers I talked to I and mean, they are like, I don't, I have no idea about pruning. Yeah. And then gardeners or even people that you know, are like a property supervisor. There'll be a certain kind of plant that they're not comfortable with. Mm. Like I do lots of boxwood cloud gardens. Um, And I mean, the people that are very skilled at horticulture, but they're like, I don't know how to, you know, approach this particular issue.
0: Yeah. And then you may, you know, everyone's got their strengths and weaknesses. And I think it's good when you're working with someone to try and share that knowledge as well. Don't just go off and do it. If you actually know what you're doing, teach that person is with you. It doesn't matter if they know more than you about this other part. Maybe they know more than you about irrigation but maybe you know more about pruning and, you know, we've got to talk to each other and share this knowledge to advance our industry as a whole.
1: I agree. Like that term, we all rise in the rising tide, you know, that it's, if I educate the client, it's not, you know, and then I educate someone else. It's not that that person's going to steal business, that if (laughs) the clients and the public are more educated, then they're going to, then they're going to request better quality. And then everybody, Everybody benefits from that, like
0: yeah, and then we stop making the same mistakes over and over.
1: Right, you know, like a a tool that I started using because in the U.S. a lot of people are Spanish speakers, and so it's been sort of a breakthrough using um, Google Translate or other software. That has been like miraculous because it's like when I'm communicating these like very complex ideas. Like having like that image of a bird, like a swallow (laughs) flying through, and that's like very evocative. It gives you a picture, Mm -hmm. and so someone that hires me was a property manager. He he'd be into that, and it's been made such a difference. Like the light really goes off, you know, on the people um, that I'm training. Um, It just it's because what you're communicating is very nuanced. It's not a rule like like a crosswalk when it says green go it's not that simple it's like it often depends
0: (laughs) yes absolutely it depends on gee the location of the plant what's happened to the plant in the past the plant itself what species it is it's just so much and obviously we could never teach it all in a podcast but hopefully someone listening to this can take away a few things and just broaden their knowledge and maybe be inspired to go out and watch some diagrams from someone like Turnbull or from your website as well, Charles, and I'll give you a chance to plug that soon. Just before we get to that last question, one more second last question. Should councils, commercial businesses and residential homeowners allow anybody to prune their trees or should they vet their gardeners and horticulturists and arborists?
1: Oh, that's a great question. When I've worked on different... In different communities and then been on different tree commissions where homeowners, businesses would submit a request like for a tree removal. Um, both of these towns were like very conscientious. So anybody could do the, the pruning of the tree. But if you wanted to remove it, you needed to have a, a letter from a certified from an ISA certified arborist. Um, and so there's like credibility. And then there'd be like a replanting plan usually. So you're removing a 10-inch caliper tree. We want five 2-inch caliper trees, you know. To, to um, so more and more, like the state of Connecticut is 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 very conscientious about requiring. They have their own certified arborist standards, with even beyond the International Society of Arbor. Our boar culture, the state of New Jersey, the same. And so those are I mean, both pretty populated and also pretty wealthy community states. and But then everybody benefits. It's safer. The, the trees live longer. Um, I mean, here in Texas, it's very diverse. Some cities like Austin have lots of tree preservation, uh, very conscientious. Houston is the largest city in Texas. And it's like the Wild West it's like <laughs> there's almost no regulation there are there are standards to protect trees, but if you want to remove a, a historic tree, you just fill out a form you know if I mean so it's like what is that really is yeah. that really protected <laughs> yeah. so I think education is the key it's like educating people the benefits of of the of having trained people um, that it's safer and that you that that you get more for your money that way. So you're not doing unnecessary pruning.
0: Unnecessary pruning. What a great note to end it on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Charles. But I always have one final question that I like to ask guests. This doesn't have to be on topic. It can be about whatever you like. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about?
1: Oh, sure. Um, Well, I mean, I'm really fortunate that I get out and I give talks and education. So you can find on our website, which we can have that link provided, um, kinggardeninc.com. We have online courses. Um, Then on the website, we also list where I'm speaking. And I mean, in this age, it's plenty of times it's available online also. And then we have a, my wife and I produced a podcast series in the landscape. That's like a general generalist. We have about 70 episodes. And then I do, on the on my youtube channel and then there's other under our education there's other platforms that i give courses on like for mm-hmm. continuing ed so we can stay up to date
0: <laughs> brilliant charles thank you so much for your time today that was a wonderful episode i really enjoyed this
1: oh great thank you daniel it's great to participate and, and get get some good information out there thanks for all the work you're doing
0: A one-hour podcast isn't going to teach you everything you need to know about renewal, rejuvenation and reconstructive pruning. Check out the show notes for visual tutorials and diagrams and find yourself a pruning mentor if you can. If you know how to prune correctly, it's your responsibility to share your knowledge with others and together we can fulfil Cass Turnbull's vision from Plant Amnesty to end the senseless mutilation of trees through malpruning. If you'd like a job that involves pruning, there are plenty of horticultural roles available in Australia on hortpeople.com, the job board that I created because I didn't like using the big job boards for reasons I covered in episode 117. There are nursery roles, parks and gardens roles, and landscape maintenance jobs from large national companies as well as smaller workplaces. Some of the positions require experience and others don't. You could be in a new job next week, so head to hortpeople.com to check it out. Honestly, do you really have anything more productive to be doing right now?